Hello, hello. Welcome to Conversations with the Chiefs. Uh, today we have a very special guest with us, uh, Andrea Valente. Uh, she is a seasoned professional with a wealth of experience in navigating cross-cultural business environments in clinical research. Uh, she is an aspiring musician playing a multitude of instruments such as the saxophone, the flute, and the bass guitar. Um, and she so happens to be the CEO of Clin One. Uh, welcome, Andrew. We're very excited to have you. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. And uh, to start off the segment, uh, we like to start off by turning the floor over to the guests so they can tell the uh, audience just a little bit more about themselves. So definitely love just to turn the floor over to you just to have you shed some additional insight. Sure. Great. Thanks. So um, I uh, currently reside in the Boston area, uh, but I am a born and bred, raised New Yorker. Uh, so I am still a Yankee fan and not a Red Sox fan. So uh, uh, pretty lonely up here, but still love to be in this area. I've been here for quite some time. Um, I am a single mom and, and a CEO at the same time. So I juggle an awful lot. Um, love my company, love my team at Clin One. I've been there for about a year and a half. Um, in my spare time, um, as you mentioned, Steve, I like to play music. I've been doing that for a very long time, and it really provides some great opportunity for me to sort of use my creative side. Um, I also like to spend time in the garden, get my hands dirty, and get close to nature. Uh, that also provides an opportunity to get respite from my busy day. So that's a little bit about me and uh, looking forward to this conversation. Great. And as you uh, as you juggle the multitude of um, I would say hobbies that you have on top of parenting, I'm sure that there's some very uh, important lessons that you've learned when you're shaping your professional career also. Um, could you uh, share with us um, some of the things that you've learned throughout your career that really helped you as a leader today and really influence your approach to business? Yeah. Um, one of the things that comes to mind very specifically, both in my personal parenting life, but certainly in my professional life, is the really important ability to adapt and adopt. Um, we have much change going on in the drug development clinical trial space. And we really need to be able to have the opportunity and the ability to adopt our strategies and be able to apply those strategies. And then by the way, learn from them and adopt again. So learn, change, learn, change, um, and do that in a very agile way. Uh, I do that as a parent, my kids will throw curveballs at me all the time and <laughs> being able to, um, respond and react to those in a way that uh, is um, both helpful, but also moving in the direction we need to, I think is critical. And I think that's appropriate for the business world as well. Um, one of the things that people tell me also that I've learned is um, don't get rattled. Um, you know, this change is going to happen and your ability to respond in a way that is clear in a way that's transparent will also benefit. And I found that to be the case throughout my career. What do you think difficult, uh, the most difficult transition has been going from a much larger, large enterprise business, going to a startup environment? Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. I think um, I've been, as you know, at very large organizations like Oracle 
and Clario um, in the past, um, and now at, at a, essentially a startup organization. Um, certainly those transitions are large, um, but I, I think actually for me, the most difficult transitions have always been when there has been either an acquisition um, where I've been acquired or I've been involved in acquiring a company and helping to make that acquisition work in the ways that we need them to. And to me, that is a very challenging thing to do because you have to not only understand the direction you need to take the business, but also how you bring the people along, how you help them be successful with this transition and support them in the ways that they need to. Um, and being able to really integrate all of those pieces that need to happen, whether it's product, whether it's work processes, whether it's people, all of those things need to be taken into consideration. And it's tough. Uh, for those who've been through it, I'm sure they understand that. I'm, in terms of board management, managing up, right? Um, with this transition to CEO, what, what do you think is the most challenging part of managing up, setting expectations? Certainly, that's true. And, and it's interesting you mentioned manage expectations because in my previous example, that's also important because lots of people think, oh, we're going to get this done in 30 days. Never happens. We know that. So managing those expectations, both in small ways, but in larger ways is really important. Um, from a board perspective, uh, being very clear um, about our objectives as a company, uh, being able to tie and really trace back to how we're getting things done is really important. So they can see not only the vision, but the plan of how to get there. And, you know, a good friend of mine told me that bad news does not age well like fine wine. And so being able to share news, whether it be positive news or not so positive news, is important for people to understand. So not only can you demonstrate that either you have a plan to address that issue, but also never be afraid to really solicit help. Because in most cases, your board members want to help you be successful. And mm -hmm. so being able to solicit them and engage them in ways that are effective is really important. I found that to be the case. I'm very fortunate in that I have a board that is very um, interested and willing to be helpful and want to see the company successful because they really believe in what we're doing. And as you make uh, this, as you made that transition, uh, Andrea, from larger organization to more startup, has your leadership style or core values or principles shifted along to cater to the organization as you made that change? You know, I, I would say, Steve, my core values really have not changed. Um, they've really been very steadfast. Um, and that sort of has served me pretty well because um in, in all cases, it has allowed me to sustain good professional relationships throughout my career that frankly have been valuable, whether I've been at a large organization or a smaller organization. Um, the, and, and honestly, even outside of our industry of drug development, it has served me well as um, too. So I don't think my core values have changed and they really boil down to um, you know, being clear, being transparent, being ethical, um, delivering what we say <laughs> and what we do, um, 
promising what we deliver and then actually doing it, and really making sure that um, when we offer a solution for a customer, we have an agreement that it's the right fit. And that really requires good conversation and good understanding. Um, I, I never want to underestimate the skill, and it's hard to really sort of put your biases aside, put the, the inner voice in your head aside, and really think and listen to what your clients are telling you. And that, by the way, goes with employees as well. They often have very interesting and good perspectives. Um, I'll give you a great example. I have a new sales rep who just started this past month. And um, he comes from a little bit outside of what we do. And yet he's still been sort of tangentially involved in the healthcare life sciences space. It's not been directly related. And he's come in with some fresh eyes and he's really brought some very interesting perspective and challenged us. And by the way, challenge is good. I think as a CEO, I need to be challenged all the time by my team and make them feel safe to do that. So him bringing in that perspective and allowing for that to happen is really important. And me listening to what he has to offer is equally important. I think I think that's great. And when uh, when you're talking about uh, a little bit earlier about some of the uh, the challenges of um, just navigating the landscape uh, in times of uncertainty or adversity, how do you inspire and motivate your team to navigate those challenges to achieve those business goals that you guys have? Yeah, and and look, um, you know, as a startup, as you can imagine, we have our ups, we have our downs, we have our pivots. <laughs> that we need to make. And, and often, you know, sometimes that's not easy for everybody. Um, change sometimes is difficult. I think what, I, what has served me really well, and frankly, the way I've worked with my leadership team is to really be um, as transparent as possible. Uh, now we can't share everything necessarily, but we, we do owe it to our team to help them understand a couple of things. One is where we are, in our journey as a company, uh, where we are as a company in our journey related to our mission. And also if there are changes and if we ask them about something that they can contribute to do with us, what I found what inspires them is if they can make the connection between what they do to what we achieve and what our objectives are, that inspires them that gets them motivated to be a part of the solution. So to me, it's all about that communication and that transparency, and then ultimately helping them be successful. Um, you know, a servant leader is used a lot as a, um, as a moniker and as a term. I do believe in that. Um, I tell my sales team, um, I want you to be far more successful than me because ultimately you make the organization successful for all of us. And that's true about my product managers. If they have developed a product that really a customer can embrace and incorporate into what they need to be more successful, reduce cost, help their patients, then wow, that's a big deal. Um, and that makes them successful and that makes us as a company successful. So those are the kinds of things I promote as a leader 
and what I use to help them navigate that change in adversity. Since you've been in Clin One, just looking at the industry as a perspective, what do you think has been what's what's been the most challenging part of the market in terms of navigating from a clinical uh, trial platform company as a technology organization? Yeah, um, I think the dynamics of our industry are changing to some degree, yet remain. Um, very conservative. We went through the COVID period where that was a catalyst and required a lot of change to happen in order for clinical trials to continue to be conducted. Um, and so there was the leap of faith by many of our customers to move in the direction of remote clinical trials, decentralized clinical trials, however you want to call it, but a different model of being able to conduct a clinical trial. Um, now that COVID is not, be, is not the barrier any longer to reach patients, and there's a level of flexibility now to, for patients to come into clinic like they used to, there's been somewhat of a pendulum swing back to kind of an, a comfort operation. They know the clinical trial visit um, the use of a clinical site well, and they found it to be successful for very long periods of time. So they've sort of, re I don't want to say reverted, but sort of swung the pendulum back to some degree. I do think, though, leveraging some of the experiences that COVID brought to the table provides um, an enrichment to how clinical trials can be conducted in hybrid fashion, in the appropriate way for um, you know, remote studies, I think it's really about, you know, built for purpose or you know, fit for purpose in that we now have choice and utilizing that choice for the right purposes allows us to move forward. I still think it's pretty slow in terms of how we how we make incremental change. Um, but, you know, the good news is that we are making change. And uh, I, I hope that continues as we move down the curve for us as a company. Um, having a platform provide that flexibility for to accommodate those multiple use cases to me is really important because then mm -hmm. we can give sponsors choice about how they want to conduct a clinical trial. We can give participants and their caregivers choice about how they want to engage in a study. And we can give sites choice about how they need to incorporate that into their core processes. So being able to offer that flexibility to me is really important. And that's what we, that's what we strive to do. I mean, what technology set do you think is advanced patient engagement, um, communications with them, um, benefited them in the process the most? Well, I think certainly providing things to accommodate their ability to be successful in a study um, are technologies that allow for them to you know, engage, like um, offering them transportation in a very seamless and um, expedient way. Um, whether that be through the site or by the, on their own, uh, being able to provide them with um, communication technologies that allow them quick access to a clinical site, being able to help them uh, manage their own schedule and their reminders for medication so that they mm -hmm. can manage their own participation easily um, are technologies that allow for them to, 
to be successful. Um, to me, it's it's not it's not about intrusiveness. It's about integration. You really have to fit into a person's daily routine um, and be able to have them to incorporate that in order for it to be sustainable. So mm -hmm. to me, those are the technologies that will make and continue to make the most difference for participants. So there's no doubt that uh, clinical research plays a major role in uh, advancing patient outcomes. So what do you see as being a major game changer in shortening the timeline to uh, new therapy approvals? Well, certainly um, the data have told us that uh, retention rates for patients have been difficult. Um, and the, the challenge with that is, is it's a vicious cycle. If we don't have enough data from patients because they're dropping out of studies, that means you have to fill the pipeline with new patients, which essentially is starting over to collect these data, and then you elongate the study. So to the degree that we find the right patients through the right recruitment strategies early, and then be able to support them so that we understand their engagement during the study so that they're retained through the study is um, going to help from a uh, drug delivery timeline perspective, but also a cost delivery perspective. And I mean, there are hard costs in terms of maintaining a patient in a study, and they vary depending upon therapeutic area, but they can go as high as a half a million dollars. So if you lose a patient <laughs> halfway through a study, you've just dramatically increased your cost just with that one patient. Um, so if we can impact change of reducing that retention rate from a 30% dropout to a 20% dropout, imagine not only the cost savings, but the timeline savings in order to get those therapies to market faster. Pretty exciting, honestly, in terms of the evolution of technology and how it's impacting everything, including your company, in terms of what you have to kind of uh, you know adapt to. We, we were early on, we were talking about AI and its influence, you know, coming influence um, in both clinical trials and probably just in research and design as a whole from an industry perspective. I mean, what kind of things have you seen just recently that have, that you think will be impactful in terms of both design, patient acquisition for the diversity uh, population uh, mandate we talked about earlier, and just generally your business? Yeah. Well, there is no doubt that um, we are at the very beginning of AI um, machine learning and large language models, LLMs, in their impacts. Um, I, I know there's certainly lots in the news about, you know, what does this really mean for us as a society, <laughs> as mm -hmm. a civilization? And I hate to get big on us, but it's true. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. And so when we think, when we sort of bring it back down to clinical trials, you know, we're talking about human beings that are volunteering to participate in clinical research for the betterment of society. Honestly, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, that's what they do. Clearly, some of them are involved because they have a particular acute disease, and hopefully that helps them. Um, but there's never any guarantees. In, in clinical research. So being able to leverage these data and take these data and try and retune how protocols are designed effectively, not only to acquire the efficacy and the safety data, uh, but also to help patients be able to participate more effectively in the study. 
uh, being able to understand, and this is an area we're doing research on, being able, given all of the parameters, whether they be um, disease state, whether they be socioeconomic status, social determinants, looking at humans in their participation and being able to say, hmm, this, this category of patient at this particular time in a milestone has this probability of potentially dropping out for these reasons. Are there opportunities to intervene to help them ahead of time so that that doesn't happen? And the opportunity of leveraging AI and ML models to be able to get these data, develop that protocol more effectively, and then be able to support the patient along that journey more effectively to intercept those um, possible uh, dropouts is, mm -hmm. I think, a big deal. Um, even just being able to do, and this is not necessarily directly in our space, but being able to conduct um, clinical trials, you know, essentially in ML itself, at, you know, run models just to do initial output and initial outcome uh, uh, results before you even enter into human trials can inform the way the study is designed. There's so much information around molecule development and some of these synthetic trials that can run that will inform mm -hmm. how a real trial happens and hopefully address some of the time that we talked about earlier, as well as the number of patients necessary to run in a clinical study to get the data necessary. And I think collaboration is truly key when you're operating within that clinical research uh, ecosystem. So how does ClinOne uh, build and nurture those strategic partnerships, whether it be with pharma companies, research institutions, or other stakeholders to really drive these uh, successful research outcomes? So um, we've taken sort of a multi-pronged approach to this, uh, certainly partnering with our uh, client partners um, is critical. Um, being able to understand what they're trying to accomplish associated with their studies. We kind of open up the aperture even broader. We have, we like to understand how are the sites also engaging in ways that are effective for them so they can not only do their job uh, related to the clinical study, but deliver good care for their patients who are participating in these studies. Where are their roadblocks? Where are their boundaries? Where can we make it easier as an organization to be able to participate in a clinical study effectively? I mean, some very simple things, and I, I know it just sounds so trite, but we hear, and we've, we, we published a paper fairly recently on our um, engagement with sites about, hey, you know, what do you, where, do you, where are you most frustrated? Um, a simple area around single sign-on, um, having one login for the multitude of systems that they have to manage is actually a big deal because just password management for them is painful. Being able to access all these systems. And I will tell you, in some cases, when we interviewed some of these site uh, personnel, they had 17, 25 systems they were managing at any one time. Uh, because of the number of studies that they were working on. So being able to congregate that in a way that makes it much easier for them to, to utilize these technologies is a key area. And then finally, the participants themselves, 
asking, actually having the participant engaged in the conversation, in the dialogue about how do they want to participate? How do they need to engage in the study in a way that's going to work effectively for them? How can the study be designed from a protocol perspective, not just for efficacy and safety, but for how the participant actually needs to um, you know, be the partner that they're supposed to be in the mm -hmm. clinical trial process and incorporating that feedback as well in the, in the development of the protocol, but also in the way we deploy technology. When you think of the advancements you just spoke of in terms of remote advancements and monitoring, just the engagement with devices. I mean, you mentioned data, I think, right? Um, how important data is data security going to be and will be in terms of the evolution of how you leverage these technologies, do you think? Well, um, having been the head of a development organization for a large data collection company, um, mm -hmm. to me, um, data is probably the one asset that um, we have to, you know, preserve, care for, and, and really guard in, a, in an effective way. And as we know, threats continue to proliferate in a variety of ways. Um, you know, the, the, the nefarious forces out there get smarter and we have to continue to stay ahead of them. Um, patient data is precious. Clinical research data is precious as well. And, you know, we believe as an organization um, and take it incredibly seriously that we have to have the appropriate safeguards in place in order to make sure that that happens. Um, and we have to continue to make that a best practice for us as we evolve. I mean, we spend a lot of time making sure that that is um, an integral part of how we do and what we do. Um, mm -hmm. It's not necessarily as um, you know sexy and beautiful as all of the things out there, but guess what? If something bad happens, everybody knows about it. And that's one of the things that um, it's sort of like the plumbing in your house. You know, when it's working, who cares? Nobody cares. But when you have a leak <laughs> or when you have a pipe burst, boy, do you care. <laughs> mm -hmm. No question. Yeah. Same thing. Same thing. And when you look ahead, um, what are some of the emerging trends and future directions you see in the field of clinical research? And really, how has Clin One positioned itself to embrace some of those changes? So um, I think certainly uh, being able to incorporate care as a clinical research option, the care as a clinical research option, I never can get that out properly, um, is one of those things that will be on the forefront and continuing to evolve. Um, being able to actually have a broader network of care providers deliver clinical trials um, or have patients participate in clinical trials in, their in the comfort of their care setting, I think is really important. And there are a number of great companies out there working on that initiative. Um, we can proliferate our technologies in all of those scenarios, which is wonderful. Um, I think that um, healthcare providers uh, as, as a whole are 
often overlooked as a resource for um, helping not only leverage their knowledge of what they believe will be a good way for participants in a clinical trial to, to engage, but they have the trusted relationship with participants. There's a lot of um, uh, patient recruitment activity that goes on out there, direct to patient, really important, still believe in it. Leveraging the healthcare provider and that relationship and their knowledge of the patient is equally important in my mind. And being able to have that dialogue with that doctor um, on the patient's behalf is really, I think, an important aspect of it. And I think will also be important for the future. Um, th you know, the therapies that continue to evolve with cell and gene therapy, uh, the targeted therapies will continue to provide some really personalized targeted medicine. All of that we know is will continue to take time for uh, these therapies to move forward. But the technology that was leveraged, the mRNA technology that COVID leveraged and is now going to be used for other vaccines and other medicines is just remarkable. And our ability to actually turn a vaccine around as quickly as we did for COVID is remarkable. We can do it. It's, it's, we are capable of doing it. Being able to move some of the regulatory boundaries out of the way in order for that to happen, I think is critical. I think certainly FDA is listening to that. I think the other regulatory bodies are doing that as well. Um, I think it's 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 an it's going to be a very bright and interesting future. You see some of the staffing, clinical staffing shortages impacting the um, essentially the ability to perform clinical trials effectively. Because you look at we're looking at studies that project 120,000 physician deficit in five years. Yeah. So with all the great advancements in technology that we've been talking about. Um, it seems to be a really scary thought that having access to a, you know, a clinician, just your own purposes, but to be a, as a participant, it seems like it's going to be a real challenge. So I'm just curious if, you, if, you know, if you're thinking about that in terms of how you deliver services in the future. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. My burnout is real. Um, it's real. And, and, you know, you, you'll see it um, in, in a variety of, you know, channels, you'll see it in social media. I mean, you'll, you'll see nurses, clinicians just say, I'm done. Um, mm -hmm. I can't take it anymore. And a lot of that has to do with the level of burden that we've put upon them with the infrastructure. Um, and so, you know, they, they're, they're questioning why they went into medicine, why they went into, you know, clinical care in the first place, because their ability to serve patients is being impacted by all of the infrastructure we've put around them. You know, I am absolutely dedicated to reducing that burden. That's our job. That's what we have to do. We want to empower them to use technology. We want it to be enabling for them. We do not want it to be just another thing because, you know, that's when I get the eye roll. <laughs> that's when I get the throw up the hands. Oh no, another device I have to deal with. That's that. Then we failed. We failed. I mean, we didn't ask you this early on, but what inspired you to get involved with the whole clinical environment, especially clinical trials? Yeah. Was there a particular person who recruited you for a particular reason, or is this a personal interest? So, um, in my early days, um, and I've been in I've been in this industry now for a long time. 
Um, I was recruited for a job at a very small company at the time named Phase Forward, which was an EDC company. Mm -hmm. One of the, you know, probably the preeminent EDC company when the regulations first came out and we grew that business to be an amazing, you know, business. We took it to IPO and then eventually it got sold to Oracle. Um, and I would say that initially why I was so intrigued was we had, we were trying to tackle a really difficult problem. Um, and to me, tackling those difficult problems was really um, very interesting to me. Um, and then what happened was I met my husband and my husband had a very complex medical history. And when I realized, and I, so I became a very um, engaged care provider. Um, he went through clinical trials. Um, I was involved quite heavily in the healthcare system. And what I realized was ultimately we were providing life-saving therapies for people. We had a mission as a company, as Face Forward, you name it. And I've been through many companies in this space. Ultimately, we we're trying to help save lives. And to me, that's the bottom line. Um, and it had a personal impact on me. Um, my husband's life was prolonged because of all of the work we do in industry. I mean, he was the beneficiary of many clinical studies. Um, and that to me was gratifying, rewarding, and enriching for me personally. I left this industry for a little bit. And guess what? I came back. And ultimately what pulled me back is that fundamental purpose-driven, we're helping to save lives mission. And as you were guiding through, uh, being guided through this industry, um, were there any uh, mentors that uh, really helped shape your career throughout? Yeah. Um, gosh, um, I'll mention a few. There, there have been many people who have had such a positive impact on me. I'll mention a couple. Um, Dr. Paul Bleicher, who founded Face Forward, um, always had this amazing vision of what we could do to help speed up the clinical trial process, help really bring therapies to patients faster. And Paul, you know, who continues in our industry, um, was, you know, head of Optum Labs for a period of time, has always had his mind on where we can take this, how we can push the envelope. And his inspiration for me was a critical piece. Um, I would say um, a guy by the name of Bob Weiler, who um, was the CEO of Face Forward um, after Paul, um, who took the company public and then you know eventually became a part of the Oracle organization. Um, Bob, I learned so much from him in terms of how he ran the business, how he effectively um, you know, just was able to communicate our value to customers in ways that really resonated. And for me, Bob, you know, was a very successful person in his own right at the time. And he was my servant leader. When I was out selling, <laughs> he put his ego right in the back door and he said, I am here for you. I am at your disposal. Let's go get the business together. I will do whatever you take, whatever you need for us to be successful. I had to do a very difficult 
um, organizational transition back then. And I put that together and Bob said that was one of the best I've ever seen. So being inspired by him and learning from him and being able to really learn various facets of how to operationalize the business were just, you know, life-changing for me as a leader. So when you consider some of these inspirational moments from these mentors, um, reflecting back um, and looking into the future, um, uh, we typically like to ask individuals at the very end, um, what advice do you give future CEOs of whether it be startup, mid-sized organization, or even larger organization, things that you may have picked up along the way that'd be beneficial to them? Um, I'd say uh, probably two to three things. One, if you have a vision and a mission and you've done your homework, stick to it. That evaluate other things and be open to taking that feedback to adjust. But ultimately, you probably had good intuition about where you were going. That doesn't mean be blind. That just means be committed and stay committed and, and take in that feedback. Be open to feedback from a variety of sources that will enable you to inform your decision-making, inform your journey, evolve as you need to. Um, I would say also for leaders, um, being able to really, I, I, can't, I can't emphasize this enough, sort of calm the inner voice in your head <laughs> and listen to what your customers are saying. Listen to what your employees are saying. Listen to what your, even some cases, your partners and your vendors are telling you. Mm -hmm. And you will learn a lot and that will help propel you forward. Um, and the, the, the last thing I would say is mistakes happen. And by the way, that's okay. And, mm -hmm. you know, that phrase, that phrase of fail fast is a good one because it's okay to fail, it, but it's important to learn from the failure. Um, if you continue to, you know, hit the, use the same tool to hit that to hit that nail, that's probably not going to be in your best interest. Change the tool, change the technique. Maybe the nail isn't the right thing in the first place. Uh, be able to make those adjustments and and learn and listen, listen, listen. Great, and I think this wraps up our podcast for today. Uh, but definitely did want to thank you for uh, joining us today, Andrea. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun.